0: Hi, I'm here at the Rapid AI booth with Matt Mortensen. He's a product manager for one of their newer software products out. Um, This this software, I'll let him tell you about it, but this software is an automated system for interpreting uh, diagnostic imaging. They have products out for stroke, they have products out for PE, but some of their newest and exciting stuff is looking at automatic detection and measurement of cerebral aneurysms. Matt, why don't you tell us a little bit about it?
1: Absolutely, I'd be happy to. So, our product interfaces specifically with uh, CTA, 3D Time MRA, and 3D RA imaging modalities. Uh, what we provide is a 3D visualization of the vasculature within those scans, as well as any aneurysms uh, visualized on those 3D models and, and quantified within the software. Uh, physicians can interact with those models and measurements as they wish, and it also provides the ability for them to, to find potential cases um, that may be uh, candidates uh, for possible intervention or, or, treat, uh, or tracking of aneurysms.
0: Yeah, and you know, AI, machine learning, all these things are such buzzwords these days. They're, they're very popular. Everybody seems to be looking into it. And we were talking before, Matt, that when I was in medical school, I had a friend who did a lot of coding, and, and we tried to come up with a tool to do this and a tool to do that. And we always assumed, well, there, there's a company out there with engineers right. doing it already, which, of course, is true. But one of the most interesting things I've found as these products keep coming out is that people worry about job security. Mm-hmm. Surgeons worry about getting replaced by robots, radiologists worry about getting of replaced course. by software like this. And so we were talking about one of the best uses of software like this is not only as an uh, adjunct to a human radiologist and to help people at major academic centers, but also for, for helping with triage and helping detect things out in the community, out in underserved areas to, to flag things where they may not have a radiologist to serve huge populations. So what, what kind of applications do you see in that kind of setting?
1: absolutely I mean you you hit the nail on the head I think that you know, Another thing that, that we try to clear up is our goal is not really ever to, to replace a radiologist. Mm. Um, we're, we're, we're trying to provide uh, enhancements to their workflow. So in fact, a lot of our products, we really try to, to suit it towards the radiologist needs and integrate it with their workflow. Uh, and and that, that's really something that, that's important to us. A radiologist is a very important user for us to, to feed, meet their needs. Um, we're not necessarily trying to, to, to replace them. Um, but, but I do agree, uh, a big advantage of the aneurysm software, for example, we want to process all CTAs coming through the system, so not just stroke codes, for example. So, for example, general ideologists at at a spoke site may be evaluating images for a variety of secondary diagnoses, not just unruptured aneurysms. Um, So we think we can provide an advantage there by being a solution tailored towards that specific disease state.
0: Right. Every pixel might have an incidental finding, right? Right,
1: exactly. Okay,
0: very good. Well, Matt, thanks for taking the time to tell us about Rapid AI, and I will personally vouch that the visualizations are quite beautiful.
1: Thank you very much. I appreciate that.
0: This is the Neurosurgery Podcast. Welcome to the Neurosurgery Podcast. Here we are graced yet again with a good friend of the show, a repeat customer, if you will, uh, the channel himself, Andrew Chan. Uh, We were uh, lucky to have him on previously for our our very brief mini-series on So You Want to Be a Neurosurgeon, where he gave advice to high school students, college students, medical students about how to prepare yourself to break into this field. And now, as Andrew is reaching the end of his fellowship and about to embark on his own fully-fledged career as an attending, I thought it might behoove our listeners to bring him back to talk about So you wanna be a neurosurgeon for neurosurgeons. When we're reaching the end of our training, how do we make that transition from the resident mindset, the resident position, to attending hood? And this is something we've talked about before with many prestigious and illustrious leaders in our fields, but I don't think we've really touched on this subject from the inside, from the resident perspective itself. So Andrew, welcome back to the show. Maybe in case some of our listeners didn't catch your previous episodes
2: yet, uh, say hi and introduce yourself. Oh, thanks, John-Paul. It's uh, fantastic to be back on the podcast again. Uh, I always enjoy listening to this and it's a great thing you guys are putting on. It's always a pleasure to, to be here. Um, so just to give a little background to the listeners here, uh, I went to undergraduate at UCLA. Uh, then I went to medical school at Columbia and then I went to residency at UCSF and then I'm f- finishing up my Duke fellowship right now with Dr. Shaffrey and the team over there. Uh, and then next year I'll be starting my faculty job at New York Presbyterian. Uh, uh, Columbia so in
0: summary you can take his advice to heart he knows what he's talking about (laughs) so so break it down for us Andrew obviously you know listing the positions you've had the places you've worked and trained it's clear that you were on this path from the beginning and that you had these aspirations for neurosurgery academic neurosurgery academic spine so you you saw your goal and clearly you have successfully navigated the path toward that goal So similar to how we talked before about how to get into neurosurgery, maybe set the stage for at what point in your career, in your residency, did you start thinking about how to exit
2: training? Sure, certainly. Well, I think the fundamental foundations of all this did start again when I was in medical school at Columbia. You know, they had such a uh, supportive environment in that department of neurosurgery for all the medical students in which they had formal didactics. Uh, We had a research here uh, that was funded by the department to do Mm -hmm. research. And so really setting the foundations for one, some of the clinical knowledge that you need to be successful, you know, certainly in residency, but afterwards as well, but also sets you up for success in the academic neurosurgery domains of research and also giving you that initial uh, introduction to Organization and the ways you can be involved in the greater, you know, neurosurgery. Uh, so with that foundation, then you know, went into residency at UCSF. And, you know, early on in the junior residency or, you know, right in the beginning of residency, you're just, you know, you're staying afloat. You're, you're making sure that your patients that you're taking care of get good care. You're learning about all the different pathologies. You're learning about the surgery. So it's one mindset, as you're alluding to, you know, a, a training and I'm getting these skills. And certainly when you start transitioning over to more of the senior residency roles, when you're finally, you know, making some more of the decisions clinically, uh, and also in the operating room, and you're realizing, wow, you know, I can do these cases independently, I can do clinical encounters independently, mm-hmm. I know some of the basic principles of practice, uh, which for us, you know, at UCSF, I would say, is already you're, you're you're chief at some of the sites that we have, including our county hospital and also the VA. Uh, and so at that point, you're in the chief mindset, and I think with that mindset then comes wow, one day I will be faculty, I will be actually yeah. the attending of record, and that gives you that ability to transfer over uh, to that mindset, which is important then to build your success down the line.
0: Yeah, so it's really interesting that you talk about the point in training at which you start to take that perspective. Um, I, I've been talking with a few people recently about just that transition where you, you come in early as a, as a junior, as an intern, and you're given a list of tasks to do. And your whole existence for that day is do these things. And someone tells you what to do. And then as you get older and older, as you pointed out, suddenly you're not just doing things that you're told to do, you're figuring out what needs to be done and running those plans, running those decisions by someone else. And then eventually there's no one to run it by, right? You're you're just the boss. And so with the career path that you're taking, part of that was a fellowship. And part of that is now finding yourself a job within academia. The answer is different for everyone, but maybe if you could try to tap into the gestalt for why do some neurosurgeons pursue the path you've chosen and why do some surgeons not? And, and I guess specifically, what were some of the most important steps along your way within residency to get that fellowship position, to get that academic
2: job? What are the big do's and don'ts to enact the career vision that you had? And so, yeah, I think you bring up a really good point in that, you know, ultimately, this is going to be self-directed. At some point, you only have so many hours in a day, and then you have to decide, of those 24 hours, what you're going to devote your life to. And if that includes, you know, having more, maybe what some would call balance with, you know, a clinical life, but then also with more family life, maybe a hobby, maybe if you like fishing or golf, something like that, then that's one way you can go. But if you like some of the things like more than just the clinical experience of being a neurosurgeon but doing the research you know being an active participant in resident education being active in organization as well that takes a lot of time and commitment and so you have to make that decision at that point point. and so for me i knew these were all things i loved um very early on i, I saw what how great it was to be able to contribute back to the greater organization uh, and it was as many forms you know uh in research Um, I love being part of the quality outcomes database research group that we have Um, and this is a great spine initiative uh, where we're able to to conduct basic comparative effectiveness research and beyond uh, for some basic degenerative conditions uh, in a way that we've not to date been able to do and it's probably the biggest organization's effort in spine registry research today. And so that's been a big joy of mine. And I knew something that, you know, something I want to continue down the line. Uh, Same with, you know, working in organization, uh, working uh, in certain uh, groups in the Congress at the resident committee, Um, also sitting on certain committees in the AANS as well. You know, this has been a very fruitful and joyful endeavor for me. And it's something that I know I want to continue on uh, for years to come. So how I you know how I frame this to myself, or when I'm talking to mentees about, you know, when what do you need to do to set yourself up? How how do you set yourself up to get that fellowship? How do you set yourself up for that faculty job? And for me, you know, very myopically, like let's say an academic spine neurosurgical position, right. I'm pretty specific. So you know, it might be something that wouldn't be as applicable, maybe to some other subspecialties, or if you're not going into academic spine, let's say. Sure. Uh, But for me, I always thought of the three big pillars uh, for me, which was clinical domain, research domain, and the organizational domain. And these were all things that were critical to what I wanted to achieve in my life and what I wanted to give uh, as part of my profession. Uh, And so these are all things that you know you need to nurture throughout, you know, starting day one. Um, starting even in the intern year and junior yeah. residency, when we are trying to, you know, just keep our head above water at the time, and so what you need to do is succeed in each of those domains. So you can't really take shortcuts in any of them. You know, you need to be a master clinician and a master surgeon. That's first and foremost, and one of the most important things for me. But then at the same time, while you're doing all that, you need to start getting your research chops. You know, starting in medical school, uh, taking extra classes in the master's of public health school. Um, Uh, excuse me, in the public health school, um, is the way I got some of the statistical principles I still use to this day, the way I'm able to do analyses, but then also giving me the skill set of, you know, when I know I also need to collaborate in certain domains and and how to do that in research. And that was something that, you know, certainly UCSF facilitates very well during residency. Um, I had very good mentors, including Praveen Mumaneni, who really helped me um, foster this and also, you know, develop this throughout the training and so that I was working on that domain the whole time. And then in organization as well, you know, uh, being able to to sit on on, on different committees and contribute different things throughout um, residency, I think really helped me, you know, one, uh, you know, show what's possible when we have a good group of people working together. So I sat on the subcommittee um, of the resident committee, which is the CNS fellowship directory committee. And what this was, is at the time the CNS uh, didn't have a comprehensive fellowship directory. Hmm. And we thought this was very important for the greater uh, organization, for residents coming through, for even medical students, you know, uh, doing their research down the line. Um, to, to have this comprehensive directory for all the sub specialties that's updated, uh, has in-depth uh, interactive items like videos and, and some more details than is present out there uh, yeah. so far in, in different various platforms. And so we are able to actually get this live up and running now. Uh, and so, you know, these were all things I'm working on during residency in cultivating those three domains, again, clinical, research, and organization, uh, to then give me the, the, the the experience of knowing what needs to happen next, uh, getting the nice networks to be able to continue that work into the future, to then know that also, you know, this is the uh, you know, getting to further developed the clinical domain in fellowship with Dr. Shafri. Um, you know, a great deformity training in, in, in residency at UCSF, phenomenal spine department with Praveen Mumineni, Dean Chow, Christopher Ames, uh, Lee Tan, Aaron Clark, getting, you know, all those spine cases, but you know, again, further developing with another view of that in Duke's fellowship, you know, with Dr. Shafri, uh, Koit Tan, Mohammed Um It's been a great you know, thing and you're kind of always building towards that, you know, mountain top throughout this whole time and and as long as you keep building towards your end goal and you have a clear picture of what that end goal is, you'll get there eventually. Yeah. It's gonna seem like baby steps, you know, day in, day out, when you're a PGY four, five, six, seven, but you know, you'll finally get there and for me it's it is a bit surreal sometimes to then think, Wow, I'm going to be starting my faculty position as an attending neurosurgeon where I started as a medical student, right. you know, all these years later. But you know, I never lost sight of that mountaintop vision. Yeah, the, the peak of the mountain is, in fact, your base camp
0: um, right. to, to close the circle. It, it's, it's so fascinating to me to hear you talk about one of your pillars being organization, by which you mean organized neurosurgery. But clearly, uh, the pillar under all of this is your personal organization, right? You, you've defined your goal, and you've defined sub-goal and sub-goal, and these various levels all the way down working toward and building toward that final goal. And I, I can't imagine uh, such a level of organization for your life and your career, because I'm scattered, right? I'm, I'm chaotic and probably most people are uh, closer toward my end of the spectrum than yours. And we're just scrambling through life trying to figure out where am I gonna fit in and how do I get there? But I, I think one of the most critical and inspiring things that, uh, that you were just talking about is your, your role with the QOD. That's where I first met you when I was a medical student uh, helping Dr. Wang uh, organize the quality outcomes database uh, work at the University of Miami. He would bring me to the meetings, and I would get to meet all of these huge names that I had just seen on papers and textbooks, and oh my gosh, that's a real person, and, and he's really nice. And that's where I met you at one of the, uh, the first QOD meetings I went to. And what really struck me is that everybody in that room, from you to the Dr. Wang to Dr. Jack Knightley, who was hosting that meeting, it was in Jersey, everyone in the room cared so much and they were just normal, nice, welcoming people who cared so much about the work we were doing that they were willing to set aside time from their clinical hours, set aside time from their family hours to do this non-revenue generating work just to figure out the best thing to do for their patients, right? and so. I remember sitting in that room and thinking to myself wow i would kill to be one of the people in this room and i went back to miami with dr wang and i said okay where's the where's the man behind the curtain what's the secret behind the neurosurgery mafia like how do you get into that room how do you get to be one of the one of those people and he said there's no secret there's no mafia you just work hard and if you're willing to do all that extra work and you do it well those are the people in the room and so hearing you talk about your work with the qod and all of your three pillars the clinical the academic the the organized neurosurgery it's just another piece of evidence supporting that that the way you get to these jobs at such a great institution like columbia is not by knowing the right person not by shaking the right hands and kissing the ring like so many people think these things traditionally work but it's really just who's willing to put in the time to achieve all of those steps up the mountaintop so to speak so assuming that someone listening has these aspirations. Assuming that they have the inner drive, the inner care and the willingness to put in their hours and and they share a similar vision for what they want their life to be, we've covered the why. But maybe we could think a little bit about the how and the nitty gritty. And these are the simple low level questions that Perhaps things like the fellowship database will help to answer, but for now it's like, you ask people, you get different opinions, but no one really knows. So within the realm of your experience, within the realm of other people you've talked to who are recently succeeding in this process as you've done, let's talk a little bit of details. So I'm a resident, I want to wind up in an academic job. Let's say that I, I am going to pursue a fellowship. When do I start looking? When do I start applying?
2: That's great, and you know, This is this is the key. Right. You know, a lot of a lot of this is sausage gets made thing. People don't know. Um, And the field, you know, is unfortunately quite small relative to, you know, many other fields. Yeah. and, And And disclaimer, again, I talk about
0: this a lot, but the perks of having a podcast. I'm a PGY3 resident and I'm interested in spine. So, you know, no personal interest here at all. But when should any old resident
2: be looking at fellowships? Yeah. So, you know, I, I will preface this by saying, you know, I'll definitely get to the when, yes. but I think the, the first question you ought to ask yourself is why. Right. And with fellowship, there's definitely different reasons that everybody does a fellowship. You know, we're fortunate in the field of neurosurgery, especially in spine, that, you know, at least for a whole host of basic procedures, you'll get vast experience in residency. Yeah. And so... Unlike other subspecialties, you know, for for heart surgery or or something, you know, in other parts of the body, um, you know, where you're actually learning a completely new procedure and skill set, mm. you know, for some people, you know, you might already have a high volume program, let's say like at UCSF, uh, where you get a very good clinical training already. So, you know, if the question is, I want to, you know do more procedures, then you have to ask yourself what kind of procedures? Do you want to do the same thing you were doing residency? Do you want to add to your skill set? Do you want to get uh, uh, you know some cutting edge technology such as with the endoscope or with robotic training or a lot of the minimally invasive procedures that are, are coming in vogue, then that, that is your why. But other people have different whys too. Um, I think you know for some of the domains I was talking about in terms of the research and organization, um, it's, it's, fellowship can be a good opportunity to be able to tap in some of these networks mm. that different programs would have that maybe your residency program didn't have. You know, to, to be able to, for me, continue work in the QOD and continue work in the International Spine Study Group was, was very important to me and that was something that I was looking for in a fellowship. So if that's something you're interested in, um, then you know, that's something you should consider as well in terms of you know, why you're doing fellowship but also you know, then which fellowship. Do you want to do yeah. and some of that also remains to be true for the organization aspect you know there's certainly some fellowships you can do that are maybe more clinically focused uh, uh, maybe don't have some of the, the those desires in terms of developing um, people contributing to the organization maybe um, you know uh, you know, being leaders in the field uh, you know more so than maybe leaders in the hospital or leaders in, in their operating room which is you know fine totally you know to everybody you need to you know do what you want to do um, but there's definitely some programs that you know have these kind of networks and these programs set up for you to help support these um you're going to meetings and you know being able to contribute in this fashion so ask yourself why and then at that point you can ask yourself when because when is dictated um by which fellowship really you want to be doing in this country right um there's so many different kinds again um maybe more you know clinically focused let's say you're coming from a residency program where you didn't feel like your spine training is very good for even some of the maybe the more basic spine procedures um, then you know you'll be looking at maybe x y or z type program Um, and then you know it just that's a different timeline than maybe if you're looking for some of the fellowship programs it may be the total package of helping you with you know this certain piece of the pie for the clinical picture, the research, the organization, and and a lot of times these may be some of the more competitive uh, fellowships to get into, um, and then you know that's a different time frame as well of when you know to apply. So some of the you know fellowships I've been hearing about you know in, in the country um, like Praveen Mumineni's fellowship at UCSF, you know he's uh, regularly getting fellows you know PGI threes, yeah, yeah, so. You know, this is something that, you know, if you if you want to work with Praveen Mumineni, who's a phenomenal guy, um, then that's something you'll need to, you know, start applying and thinking about, you know, that early, yeah. you know. And for a lot of residents, you know, you don't even know what you want to do yet at that time point. So unless you have that crystal clear picture that that's what you want to do, you might already kind of, you know, be timed out by the time maybe you decide PGY five, PGY six that you want to go, you know, apply for a fellowship now. But there's so many different fellowships, you know, that those are those are some of the, the fellowship programs. So you just have to kind of do a little bit of homework and adjust depending on I guess what your needs are and which fellowship programs or mentors you've decided you want to work with.
0: Yeah, so second verse, same as the first. Um, after your fellowship you need a job, right? So I guess it, it, this is a little more complicated question to ask about when do you start looking for jobs, when do you start trying to find them, because that's going to depend on if you do a fellowship or not. And so again, from your own experience, from people you've talked to who are going through this process uh, contemporaneously with you, and, and I guess we should say a general disclaimer that this is advice given with your experience at this period of time, and that in one year, in ten years, this, this pattern of evolution within the field may be completely different, but we're talking about this in a period of time right now. So when you were becoming a senior resident, you had your fellowship lined up. When were you advised or when did you start looking for a job? And to your knowledge in general, if someone's doing a fellowship, do you try to line up a job before you start? Do you wait till during your fellowship and see what's available as you're finishing up? What, what does that process look like?
2: Yeah, so, you know, it it, it very much varies again, and I think it depends on what you're looking at for a job and what kind of things you're trying to, you know, ultimately you're marketing yourself. Yeah. And so, if you need your fellowship to market yourself a certain way, let's say if you want to be some guy's endoscopic spine surgeon and you haven't done your endoscopic spine fellowship yet, it could be potentially a little difficult. Though, you know, I think a lot of places would also just acknowledge that you would do the endoscopic spine fellowship and be able to be their yeah. endoscopic spine, you know, woman or man uh, surgeon. Um, but, you know, the the, I think, For me, I'll I'll just tell you specifically what I did uh, was, you know, I was pretty comfortable with, you know, what I knew I wanted um, uh, with my skill set, with what I could provide for a department. So I was ready to apply pretty early. Mm -hmm. So I started engaging uh, places that I identified that I thought would be potentially suitable places for me to work uh, starting August of my chief year. Uh, So that's as PGY7, uh, knowing that I also had a PGY8 fellowship year to go after that as well. Okay. Very good.
0: Um, Well, Andrew, obviously, each day that goes by, your time becomes more valuable, and we're going to respect that. But uh, I know personally, and I'm sure uh, so many of our listeners really appreciate you coming back to give more advice at each you know now sequentially each stage of training every time you you ascend to a new level i'm going to have you back on and and i'll book you in 20 years for so you want to be a neurosurgeon the chair edition um but uh you know it's always great to see always great to talk to you i will not fault you that one of your three pillars of neurosurgery isn't podcasting because (laughs) because we all have different lives right and we all have different paths but uh it's always great to see you and thanks again for coming on the show
2: yeah, John Paul, it's always been a pleasure, and it's been great. You know, I remember that first time I met you uh, in New Jersey, you know, after flying in um, from San Francisco to go to that QOD research meeting, and you just had such a, a vibrancy to you, and it, huh. it was just so fun seeing your career develop, and now you, you know, progressing through the years in residency, and I'm, I, too, am very excited for everything that's going to happen with you, and I love that you, uh, Dr. Wang, are doing this podcast. It's fantastic. Thanks.
0: Disclaimer TIME! The opinions and ideas expressed in this show are solely those of myself, Dr. Wang, and our guests. They do not represent the opinions of any professional institution or organization. This show is for entertainment purposes only and does not constitute the giving of medical or legal advice. Listening to or participating in this show does not constitute continuing medical education or any other professional certification. It's just a show, everybody.